Please join me in turning in those Bibles to Psalm 135. Psalm 135. If you're using a Bible from this room, you can find Psalm 135 on page 442. So I'll give you a minute to get to Psalm 135. Tonight, we are going to begin a new study, and it is primarily going to address the topic of worship. Now, for those of you who have attended our recent Sunday morning services here, you will probably recognize uh, that that is also the topic that has been addressed uh, most recently in those services, and that is on purpose for this semester at least. I do want us to kind of line up our topics here on Wednesday nights with what the church as a whole is discussing. So you're not, um, for one, you're not necessarily uh, missing out if you're not here on Sunday mornings, unless of course you're a member here or your parents are members here and you're supposed to be here, then you're missing out. But also, we don't want this to be entirely repetitive, so I'm not just going to take what was talked about on Sunday and do my own version of it. We're going to kind of have our own approach to it. We're going to examine some different angles, and the angle for the topic of worship comes from a book that I read uh, within the last few years, and it had an impact on me. And that book is called, We Become What We Worship. That's the title of the book. So you can see on the screen, that's really where I'm getting the title from this series. One minor adjustment, I put in the word like. We become like what we worship. Uh, That might be a little clearer explanation of the purpose of uh, of the title of the book, what it's trying to express. Here's the main point of the book, and it's really the main point for our message tonight. So if you have notes, you you probably have uh, an outline there in your bulletin, and uh, you can fill in these blanks as we go. Here's the main point of of that book, and really the main point of our talk tonight from Psalm 135. So you'll want to write this in. Uh, It goes like this. We resemble what we revere. We resemble what we revere. I'll describe these words in this phrase fully here in just a second, but the phrase ends like this. We resemble what we, what we revere either for ruin or restoration. We resemble what we revere either for ruin or restoration. Now, uh, let's see if we can take some of those keywords. Nirvana, you can uh, join us up here if you'd, if you'd like. There's lots of good seats still available. Um, help, me de- help me define some of these words. When I say resemble, what does it mean to resemble? Anybody? To be like. Okay, thank you, Ryan. Anybody want to expand on that? Usually to look like, yeah, uh, maybe to act like, but especially to, to look like. So you're taking on the characteristics of something, okay? 
What about to revere? We resemble what we revere. What does it mean to revere something? Anybody? The verb form of reverence. The verb form of reverence. reverence. Okay, so to give reverence to something or someone. What is what is reverence? You guys understand that idea? What is it? I said I should have brought my dictionary. You should have brought your dictionary. That's right. You should. We're trying to help each other increase our vocabulary here. What is it? Yeah, it's very similar to the idea of respect. Uh, that would be one aspect of it. If you were to go a little bit uh, further with respect, it probably would mean something like uh, to to actually serve or praise or worship that thing. Okay, to to hold it in high enough esteem that I'm going to devote myself to it. Probably. All right. So we resemble what we revere, either for ruin. What what would we mean by ruin? That's not a hard one, I don't think. What a hurricane does. Okay. Destruction, yeah. Uh, you mentioned the hurricanes. Some, you might probably have seen maybe on the news or on uh, social media these the damage the hurricane is doing. Like, um, the ruin of Greek temples. Okay, so something uh, like an ancient artifact that over time has decayed and we now see its ruins rather than seeing, the, seeing it as it was fully. Yeah. So we resemble what, what we revere either for ruin or for restoration. Somebody define restoration for me, or help me understand restoration. Yes? Okay, in what way? So something could be ruined or it could be restored. How, how could something be restored? Okay, I think that's very good. Lindsay, you had something? An, an example? Go ahead. Okay. So a pencil gets broken, and you restore the pencil as it should be by sharpening the pencil. Very good. Now, let's think about how that phrase uh, carries weight for the topic of worship. Um, When you and I worship something, we, and I think the the Bible points to this, I think this pastor from Lekka tonight points to this, we will take on the characteristics of the thing that we worship or the object or the person that we worship. And worshiping certain things or people or objects would lead to our ruin. It would lead to, uh, to our destruction. And yet, there is something, namely someone, that we could worship that would lead to our restoration. There's only one of those things, one of those persons. Now... Um, Remember last week we, we tried to survey the whole uh, Bible and to, to kind of be able to summarize it succinctly. What was the word we ended on? Do you remember? Restoration. So even by thinking of this aspect of worship, we're being reminded that all of God's people are headed toward a full restoration to be made like what He intended us to be. Psalm 135 is going to help show some of these truths to us. Uh, it, it might be worth pointing out, just in case you want to um, f- go deeper in your study of this, that Psalm 135 is very similar to Psalm 115, which is where Ryan read for us earlier. So you might uh, want to make a note of that, just to compare the two psalms, maybe read them side by side. Neither psalm lists an author. In other words, neither psalm uh, tells us who wrote 
this psalm. It doesn't really even tell us the occasion for why it was written. So we're just going to call this writer here the psalmist. This psalm has kind of a, a symmetrical structure. So it's written as a song, and all of the stanzas of the song match other stanzas. And I'll try to point that out as we go. And from these, there are six, from these six stanzas, we'll see three encouragements. So, uh, three sets of two. Two stanzas will match each other all the way through. Three encouragements for those of us who praise the Lord, who revere the Lord. But along with those encouragements, there's going to be some warnings for those who choose to not praise the Lord. Here's the first encouragement. The servants of the Lord must praise the name of the Lord. The servants of the Lord must praise the name of the Lord. So you'll notice in verse 1 of Psalm 135, what's the command that's given there to start the psalm? Very simply, three words. Praise the Lord. Now if you look at the very end of the psalm, how does it conclude? What are the last three words? Praise the Lord. So already you're seeing some of that symmetry in the way these things match. Now it seems like a very simple command, but there are some details about this command and how it should be followed. Uh, more specifically, in the next line, what is it about the Lord that we are told to praise? Praise the name of the Lord. So, so praising what His name says about Him. His characteristics, His attributes, His essence. Where That's what it means to praise the name of the Lord. So specifically, we are uh, praising not just any Lord or any God. We are praising the name of the Lord of the Bible. There are some questions that are answered here. Uh, in the question that we could ask, if you were to say, well, who should praise? Here's the answer that's given according to verse 1. Uh, we're told, give praise, O servants of the Lord. So who should praise? The servants of the Lord. Those who claim to serve the Lord will be the ones to praise Him. I think this matches with the, very, uh, with the next to last verse. Look down at verse 20. O house of Levi, bless the Lord, and you who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. So the, the answer in your notes would be, who should praise? The answer is, the servants of the Lord who fear the Lord. Fear would be a very similar idea to what we talked about with, with reverence. To revere the Lord. To hold Him in high esteem. To honor Him in that way. That's who should praise the Lord. There's also an answer to the question, where should they praise the Lord? Where should this praise take place? Look at verse 2. These servants stand where? In the house of the Lord. In fact, the next phrase says, in the courts of the house of our God. Uh, the, look at the end again. See how this matches up with the end. Look at verse 21. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. So you have some locations there. The house of the Lord, Zion, which was a mountain in Jerusalem where the, where the temple was established. So if you think back to 
King David wanting to build a temple for the Lord, and then his son Solomon actually building that temple, that was where the Israelites would assemble for worship. That would be what they would call the house of the Lord. So this is a command probably for them to meet together regularly for worship, similar to how you and I are meeting together for worship right now. And yet, this would not just be something they would do together, they would do this personally as well. So here's the full answer to the question, where should they praise? In the house of the Lord, and then these two qualifiers, individually, individually and collectively. Individually and collectively. Uh, you, might, you might hear it say, um, in modern times, if someone were to say something like, let's go to the house of the Lord, what is, what is, what is normally their intention for that? What are they saying? Let's go to, to church, right? You've probably heard that. Um, it would seem, though, that, that in the New Testament... The house of the Lord is not so much a building. If you think about um, what is actually called the, the dwelling place of God, do you know what it is? It's not necessarily a, a place or a building. Paul actually says that you, believers, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So think about that. You, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, if you have surrendered to Christ and trusted in Him to save you from your sins, and you've turned to Him, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. So, does that mean that you have to gather collectively to worship? Do you have to do that? No. Could you worship the Lord and commune with Him privately and personally? If you have the Holy Spirit, yes, you can. So that's why when we talk about Worshiping in the house of the Lord, it can be an individual thing. It doesn't mean we shouldn't gather together, because we ought to collectively worship Him together as well, but we can do it individually and collectively. But either way, we do it in the same manner. We do it, in a sense, in the house of the Lord. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you actually never leave the house of the Lord. I guess unless you have like an out-of-body experience. But I don't think that would be very worshipful. So that's where they should praise. Here's the third question. Why should they praise? Why should these servants of the Lord who fear the Lord praise the name of the Lord in the house of the Lord? And here's the answer. Because the Lord is good and has chosen His people. The Lord is good and He has chosen His people. Uh, you see this in verses 3 and 4. Read with me. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to His name, for it is pleasant. This is why we emphasize singing together the way that we do. It might be that when you think of worship, you think primarily about singing. That singing is maybe the main way you, you think of yourself participating in worship. It is a great way to participate in worship. It isn't the only way. But it is commanded that we should do that. That we should sing in His name, for it is pleasant. And verse 4 for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. He's chosen Israel as his own possession. So we've talked before about how when the Lord chose to make Israel a nation for himself, 
He didn't do it because of anything impressive he saw in Israel. He did it out of his own love for them. And we see in the New Testament that that's the way that he chooses his sons and daughters for salvation now. Not because he sees any good in us, but because he is good. And in his love, he has chosen his people. And that is why you and I should praise the Lord. That's the first encouragement. Here's the second encouragement. The Lord is greater than all other gods. The Lord is greater than all other gods. You see this emphasized in three different ways. The first way would be just the way the Lord is described. So write in your notes, the description of the Lord. How is the Lord's greatness described? Look at verses 5 and 6. The psalmist says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Again, that, that would remind us of what Ryan read earlier. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. So anywhere on the planet or in the skies or under the water, it is the Lord who does all that He pleases. He's the only one who accomplishes all that he wants to do all of the time. That is a description of the greatness of the Lord. Now, compare that, or actually I guess we would contrast that with the next point, the description of idols. The description of the idols. If the Lord is great above all gods, what are these gods like? And look at verse, look down at verse 15. So you'll see again how this Section closer to the top will match this section closer to the bottom. Look at verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold. They are the work of human hands. Now let's stop there and just kind of contemplate this for a second. Um, how do idols come into existence? Somebody fashions them, right? Some, some human with their hands forms and fashions these idols. How did... The Lord God come into existence. Did someone fashion him? Did someone exist before him who could create him? No. In fact, the opposite, right? How did you and I come into existence? What is it? He created, he created us, right? The reverse. He's the creator, we're the creation. And an idol is a, is a creation. It is not a creator. It is not a god. So that's one distinction. Look at verse 16. These idols have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. If there's no breath in their mouths, then that would be another way of saying they are dead. Yeah, there's no life in them. And again, this is actually a, a contrast with the way the uh, creation of mankind is described. You remember what the Lord did to Adam? He, he formed his body and then he breathed into him the breath of life, right? There's breath in our lungs because God gives it to us. There's no breath in the mouths of idols. So you see that God is greater than these idols. Now notice the description of the people. So we have, on the one hand the Lord, on the other hand, the idols. What about the people who serve these gods? Look back at verse 7. The Lord 
it is who makes the clouds rise at the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. So yes, that's a description of the Lord, but I would say that's a description of things he does for his people. He makes clouds rise at the end of the earth. He makes lightning for rains and brings forth wind from his storehouses. He does that upon the earth to show his power and his provision for his people. Now, you don't have to to follow the one true God to enjoy rain and wind or to feel its effects or to be provided from the things that they provide, right? But the Lord does this for people. What do idols do for people? Look down at verse 18. Those who make them, those who make the idols, what happens to them? They become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Do you see this, see this uh, phrase emphasized here? Those who make the idols become like them. They are, they are resembling what they are revering for ruin. Now, to say that they become like them probably means that it's, it's as though you have mouths but don't speak. It's, it would be as though you would have eyes but not see and ears but not hear or have any breath in your mouths. Therefore, you are dead. You are dead like this idol. There's no life in people who serve idols. There's no wisdom. There's no sight. There's no hearing. There's no speech. That's the description of the people who serve these idols. And here's the third encouragement. The Lord is clearly greater than all these gods. And, number three, the Lord displays His authority for the good of His people. He displays His authority for the good of His people. So this is how the middle section of the psalm points this out. And it divides it into three Categories here. The first category would be the great works of God. How is the Lord authoritative? Well, He does great works. What are some of those works? Look at what the psalmist says starting in verse 8. He it is who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings. What is that a description of? What great work of the Lord is described there? We know this. Israel was in slavery in Egypt. And what did God do for them? What is it? He freed them. He delivered them. He rescued them. The exodus. Bringing them out from the bondage of the Egyptians and saving them so that they could become his own People, That is a great work of God. Look at verse 11, another great work. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and he gave their land as a heritage, and a heritage to his people Israel. So that would be the description of the Israelites' journey from Egypt to the promised land. So not only did he deliver them from Egypt, but he defeated kings along the way until they got to their Land, He showed his great works of salvation over those other gods. And he gave the land of Canaan to his people. So again, you see that those who are revering the Lord are becoming like him in that they are enjoying his good gifts. So those are the great works of God. 
Also notice the great name of God. We mentioned this before, but it shows up again. Verse 13, Your name, O Lord, endures forever. That's why we praise the name of the Lord, because it endures forever. And your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. Your renown, your fame, it could be said, endures throughout all the ages. No other name endures throughout the ages, only the great name of God. And lastly, the last display here is of the great salvation of God. The great salvation of God. Verse 14 points this out when the psalmist says, For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. On His servants. Remember, it's the servants of the Lord who were to praise the name of the Lord. And the salvation that they celebrated here in this psalm was that salvation from Egypt, that exodus, that deliverance, that rescue. But the future salvation, future as in the psalmist saying, the Lord will vindicate His people. He will have compassion on His servants. The greatest display of this vindication and compassion and salvation would come when the Lord would send His Son Jesus in the form of a servant, in the likeness of men, And Jesus' life was a continual act of praise to His Father. And He was obedient in life and in death. He substituted Himself for all of us on our behalf to deliver us from a greater bondage than what they faced in Egypt, from the bondage of our sins, into which all of us are born. And He died that death, and He rose from the grave to defeat sin and death, to vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. So, my invitation for you tonight is to be a servant of the Lord who praises the name of the Lord. Maybe you don't yet serve the Lord because you have not trusted in His death on your behalf. Talk to your leader about what that would mean for you. Maybe you claim to belong to the Lord to be His servant, but... Praising Him corporately or even individually is something uh, that needs attention. And again, talk to to your leader. Talk to us. We'd love to pray with you and work with you uh, and show you from Scripture how that can and should be true of all of us. You've got some questions on the back of that uh, bulletin there to kind of help guide some discussion uh, as we break up. But let's pray before we do so. Father, help us that we would obey these commands to praise the Lord, to praise You, to be Your servants, to revere Your name, and thus to resemble You, uh, to, to reflect and display godliness and holiness as we worship You privately and publicly. Thank You, Lord, for this public display of worship as we pay attention to Your Word and as we sing together. Help us now as we break into groups that we would build each other up, that we would grow uh, in a way that, that would bring honor to you. And Lord, that you draw each of us to yourself as we need to be drawn to yourself. That we would revere you and thus be restored as you intend for us to be. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.